lesson three in our series for the summer on the topic of conflict and conflict resolution. The last two Sundays, we've unpacked mainly Ephesians chapter four, verses one to three, looking at what we call the motive or motivation uh, and the method for dealing with relationships in a gospel-saturated way, looking at the importance of the gospel uh, and applying the gospel to our relationships, particularly in the body of Christ. Uh, looking at those qualities that Paul says that we need, uh, initially just beginning with attitudes, humility or low-mindedness, gentleness, which is a, just sort of a, a way of saying a, a mildness of manner, uh, not approaching someone with full force, so restraining that, uh, patience, uh, slowness in avenging wrong, and then it, those attitudes then sort of spill into actions in our lives for bearing with one another in love and striving to preserve uh, the unity. So we, we ended by saying that this is the disposition that we need at the outset. Uh, this, this is a prerequisite for dealing with conflict. They are, they are attitudes that we need that will help us in some cases to prevent conflict, uh, but certainly help us to resolve conflicts in, in a godly way. And then we mentioned that it's just not always the, the issues are not always the issues, um, or not the main issue. Uh, often the main problem is that we lack these attitudes, and so we're, we we get focused on some issue between us and another person. But the thing that really is missing is the humility or the gentle. I mean, if we had the humility and we had the gentleness and we had the patience and we were forbearing with one another in love, and we were preserving the unity, then we may not even have an issue. Right, So it really, those attitudes help us to, in some cases, just determine, is this something that we even need to talk about or deal with? Uh, we'll get to eventually Proverbs um, it tells us that it's the glory of a man to overlook in, uh, transgression. So what does that mean? And, and, and when is that appropriate to do that? When is it appropriate to sort of let something go? And then when is it appropriate to not do that? And one of the things that helps us to know how to make that determination is do we have these attitudes? So if we don't have these attitudes, we're probably going to misjudge that at times, and that is going to lead to, to additional problems. So we begin with the gospel. That is our motivation. And when it comes to our method for pursuing peace or resolving conflict, preserving unity in the church, attitudes always precede techniques. Okay, so these attitudes always precede those sort of step-by-step, if you will, how, the how-tos of you know, going to someone and then how do you have that conversation or what if you're the person that's being approached, right? What if you're the person that's being confronted about something in your life? Uh, having those attitudes are going to be really, really important. Uh, so just in case you, you don't think this is, um, you know, we're just sort of cherry-picking some verses and making a big deal of something that's not really a big deal, uh, let me just... You mentioned several other passages and verses, and we're not going to have time to go through all these through the summer, but we are going to pick some of them and get into more detail uh, with some of these than others. But Romans chapter 13, this was just from our message sermon Shane preached last week. Verse 10 says, love does, does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Do this, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in... And then notice what he says here. So he's just contrasting living in the day, uh, putting on the armor of light as opposed to these deeds of darkness and, and living in, in the dark. He says that we're not to be... Uh, not in carousing uh, and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality. Okay, we get that, right? Just stop there and say, yeah, that makes sense, right? I mean, those are definitely deeds of darkness, right? I mean, we don't want to be doing that. I mean, we're, if we are in the light, if we have the, the armor of light on, we're definitely going to be dealing with things like drunkenness and carousing and sexual sin and sensuality, but Paul doesn't just say those four things, right? What are the last two? What, is it, what does the ESV say, by the way, in the last two? Quarreling, quarreling and jealousy, right? Uh, New American Standard says in strife and 
jealousy, and, and, and the word for strife there is a, is a word, is translated as, as quarrels in other places. And then we have jealousy, which is zealous, which is the word we get our term zeal from, which isn't always a bad thing because there are passages that say zeal, we should be zealous, right? But this refers to, you might say that selfish or um, bitter zeal. <laughs> so there's a, there's a bite to it. Um, so it's used in a negative way. We'll actually see that over in, uh, it's, 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 it's used that way in James chapter 3. Uh, but these two terms, strife and jealousy, they're found together uh, in, in other passages in the New Testament. One of those significant is 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where it's used by Paul to describe the problem in that church. And this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 1, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of the flesh, as to infants in Christ, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not able, uh, yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, and that's the identical terms, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? And so this is just saying you're, you're not walking in the Spirit. You're not thinking God's thoughts about how to treat one another in the body of Christ. We'll come back to this. This is this, that's the schism or those factions in the church where he says in verse 4, one, one says, I am, I am of Paul, another I am of Apollos. Are you not mere men? What then is Apollos? What is Paul's servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one? So he's just saying this, is, this whole thing, you've got this whole thing mixed up, right? As far as the role that these men play, the fact that Christ is the Lord of the church, I mean, you've, you, you've, you've totally mixed this up. And at the, root, at the root of that is this bitter jealousy, this bitter zeal and these quarrels and, and strife. Uh, Romans chapter 14, verse 19, uh, Paul says this, so then, so then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Again, this is a word Paul uses, uh, this term for pursue in most cases in the New Testament is a word that's translated as persecute in the book of Acts. So it has this idea that it's something that you chase after or go after relentlessly. So in the same way that Paul's persecutors would chase him from town to town. They wouldn't just, if Paul left town, they didn't just give up, right? They found out where he was going and they went to that town and they continued to harass him. Paul takes that term that Luke uses in the book of Acts and Paul applies it to these kind of things to say, you need to be chasing, hunting down um, peace. That's what you're doing. That's, you're, you're called to, for that purpose and building up of one another. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12 Paul says this, but we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So the apostle here is reminding the church how they should be relating to their, uh, their pastors, elders, those men appointed by the Holy Spirit, uh, gifted and qualified for that, who he says diligently labor, so those who work, work hard for the purpose of leading the flock, those who have charge over the congregation, just sort of refer, referring to the idea of, of, a, of management, they're, they're managing the affairs of the church, and he throws this in, giving instruction, which speaks of one of the primary responsibilities of an elder pastor, which is to teach sound doctrine, to guard the truth from perversion, to stir up the church to watchfulness and obedience and love for Christ. And Paul says, church, you are to appreciate these men. You're to know them. You're to seek to understand them. You're to value their service and esteem them, he writes, very highly in love. So you relate to them or respect them in a way that reflects that, that sacrificial love of God that you have received. So you love them by praying for them, by uh, resolving not to advance gossip about them, to receive at times their reproof, uh, to exercise your gifts alongside of and beside your leaders in the ministry, um, allowing their teaching and their counsel to be very persuasive in your heart and life and believing the best about their character, their decisions. And then notice he says at the end of verse 13, Live in peace with one another. 
So he's talking about how to relate to leaders in the church, and he's talking about esteeming and, 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 and loving them, but then he adds this, oh, and, and live in peace. So it's to say, you need to be in the body of Christ as, as believers, brothers and sisters, rooting out dissension, preferring one another, preserving the unity, pursuing peace in a God-honoring way, and when you do that, the church is more effective. Her witness is more impactful and profound because the load that is on the shoulders of the leadership is much lighter. So your elders is basically saying, I mean, Paul's thoughts here, I think what he's getting at is saying that your, your elders and leaders are able to fulfill their charge with joy rather than with grief when you are diligent to live in peace with one another. All right, so Paul's just saying, guys, listen, you may not even realize this, but strive in your relationship with other people in the church, strive to live at peace because when you're not living at peace, then you're creating situations that are causing your leaders to have to engage those situations. And not, not that it's a, some sort of like a burden. I mean, I, honestly, those times can be great times of learning, discipleship, encouragement. So it's not like he's saying, you know, your elders ought to have a conflict free life. It's just saying don't add to that so that that's not excessive because if that becomes something that's excessive, then the leaders become distracted from the things that they need to be doing, right? The equipping the saints and those sort of things. It's kind of what happened in the book of Acts we looked at last time. There's this thing going on in the body, needs not being met, and the elders, or at that time the apostles had to come aside, set, the church had to set aside some men to take care of that so that the apostles could make sure that they didn't neglect what? The word and prayer, right? So it's that same sort of dynamic. Then we have uh, Hebrews 12, 14. And again, I'm just giving you different, this is just to show you this is not just, <laughs> Paul didn't say this one time, Peter didn't say this just one time, John didn't say this just one time, Luke didn't say this just one time. I mean, these, this is a repeated theme, really, in the New Testament. Uh, Hebrews twelve fourteen pursue peace again. There's that term. Chase after, hunt down, uh, persecute peace <laughs> with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. So he actually puts these two things together: our sanctification, which is not a little thing, right? Holiness, you might say. So pursue holiness, and then the other thing he couples with that: peacemaking, right? So if you, if, or to say, you might, you might, we could even think of it this way. If you think that you are growing in your holiness and sanctification and not pursuing peace, you're sadly mistaken. Because you can't, you, these two things are not things we separate. So you might say, listen, I've, I've, I'm learning so much. I've got so much knowledge. I'm learning so many things about the Bible. And then you look at your relationships and you're not doing so well on the, on the relationship side, whether that's in the body of Christ, or you could bring that down to any situation, right? I mean, how you relate to even unbelievers, or how you relate to your children, or how you relate in your marriage. You say, how well am I doing in the relationships? Because if I'm failing in being a peacemaker relationally, then I'm not doing so great in my sanctification, right? Because these things are, these things are, are, are sort of linked up. So if you want if you want to if you want to summarize all of these verses you could just say peacemaking is not an option for the Christian it is a a mandate. We have to make every effort to strive for and pursue the things that make for peace with all men. And in all of these verses the basis for our mandate to strive for peace is the fact that God has made peace with us. In fact, we can say that the Bible is a book of conflict, if we can say that, we can also say that it is a book that records God's continual effort to make peace. Peace between man and man, peace between God and man. Uh, we know that a thread that is woven throughout the entire Bible is the thread of the gospel, which the Bible itself calls the ministry of reconciliation. Not only that, Jesus is known by many names associated with his ministry of establishing peace. He is known as the Prince of Peace. He is known as our mediator, right? So he is this one that's bringing these, these, these parties together. He, in some verses, he is simply called our peace, and it is on the basis of his work of reconciliation that we are to reconcile with 
with one another. So you might just say if you don't if you don't want to live at peace or work to make that happen with your brother or sister or neighbor, then you might as well put down your Bible. Because you're not going to get very far in the Bible before you bump into these exhortations to pursue peace. And the basis for all peacemaking is the cross. It's that application of the cross that makes us peacemakers. That's why we find this, it's a really amazing statement in Matthew chapter 5. You know, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus starts out, there's a a list of Beatitudes there. And we get to this particular one in verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Which is interesting because of all the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, this is the only one that speaks of us as being children of God. And I think that's for a reason, because in the Jewish mindset, the idea of being someone's son is the idea of having that person's nature, or, or it implies the idea of someone's character. That is why when Jesus claimed to be and called himself the Son of God, the Jews wanted to stone him. Because Jesus was basically claiming to have God's nature or to be equal with God. So in Matthew 5, 9, the Beatitudes, this particular one, teaches us that when we become peacemakers, we will be called or known, or you might say recognized, as those who have the nature of God. That is to say, it is one of the most powerful testimonies of God's work in our hearts that we are peacemakers. That is why we pursue peace with all men. That is why we are to pursue the things that make for peace. That is why we are diligent to preserve the unity and the bond of peace. Because when we are peacemakers, we are exhibiting one of the strongest testimonies of God's character in our hearts that we could ever give. Now, when some Christians read these verses about peace, they, some, some of them wrongly assume that the call to peace in the Bible is a call to avoid conflict. So as a result, their solution is to try to eliminate everything or anything that would cause conflict, which sometimes begins for them with eliminating important things. <laughs> I think, oh, just one example, uh, just eliminating truth, right? Eliminating doctrine, just saying... Well, we'll, we're just going to let that doctrine thing or we're going to let that truth thing go because we need to we need to try to strive for peace. And yet we find, again, this balance in Scripture of the need for us to be loving and to be pursuing peace and yet always uh, non-compromising, uncompromising in in the truth. And so eventually we'll talk about, again, how to sort out the the hills we should die on. and the hills that we're not supposed to die on. But, but some people have this sort of one-step process to peace. Um, they, they just want to remove any cause of argument. I see this a lot in marriage counseling. I mean, I see a lot of husbands and wives that just, their goal is to just be at peace. They'll do whatever. <laughs> we call those not peacemakers, we call those peace fakers, right? <laughs> they're, they're pretending to have peace, and they'll do anything to avoid a difference, uh, a conflict, an argument. And because their view of peacemaking is so simple, they completely ignore so much of what God's Word has to tell us and teach us about dealing with conflict. So if if you're thinking that God's call to peace means you're supposed to never experience conflict, not only are you going to be very disappointed, you'll also never be the peacemaker that God has really called you to be because the call to peace is not a call to the absence of conflict. It is a command to deal with conflict in a godly way. So it's, the, the bottom line is you're, you're going to miss it because you're going to be so concerned about not getting in a conflict that that God-given, God-ordained opportunity for you to exhibit the character of Christ and actually live out these principles, you're going to miss it. Because you're going to be trying to do all these things to manipulate the situation where you don't have to have that discussion. You don't have to have that, that difficult interaction with someone. So you're not going to really honor the Lord in, 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 in that way in your life because you're going to be avoiding these things rather than applying the truths of the gospel to the conflict. 
So remember, conflict is a part of God's plan to accomplish his purposes in us. It is that thing we talked about early on. You just have to, you have to embrace that idea. Now let me mention one other principle I think we need to keep in mind, specifically as we think about conflict in the church, and that is this, that we need to understand that this is a family matter. This is a family matter. In other words, in the midst of conflict, we have to remember to always think of those who are opposed to us as brothers and sisters. Those who are of what the New Testament says, we're the household of faith, uh, in other places, the household of God. So we have this image of the church as a family, and that image shaped much of what the apostles taught and, and, and shaped their approach to ministry, even this issue of dealing with conflict. You remember in First Timothy chapter 5, Paul wrote this to Timothy in verse 1, Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father. So again, is there a conflict? Well, if, if rebuke is involved, <laughs> okay, so there's, there's, there's a situation, Paul's just saying you're going to have them, where there's going to be a need for you, Timothy, to rebuke, correct, and reprove an older man, but here's the counsel. You need to appeal to him as a father, not as a peer, Right? So just just good wisdom here, folks. Okay, so I'm saying I, I had a guy that was an admiral in the navy that I worked with when I was in my early 20s in ministry, and one of the things that he taught me to do was when I went into a room, and this was sort of this kind of came out of his military training, but he would say, Joel, when you go into a room, one of the things you need you need to look around, okay? Because if you don't look around the room and get a sense of who's there and who's not there, then you're gonna stick your foot in your mouth. You're going to be an idiot. You know, you're going to say you're going to go in there and act some way or say something that is inappropriate. But if you can just take a moment, go into a room and just kind of look around and identify who these people are and your relationship to these people. Right. Instead of coming in like, hey, I'm here, you know, we can begin now. And then and then all of a sudden you realize there's this person there and you, you should have never come in and acted that way because of who that that person is. So he he talked about this from again, from a military standpoint, that when you walk into a room you look around and you find out, your question is what? What rank? You're like, I know, it's kind of like, where am I on the totem pole, right? If, if, I'm, if I go into that and I'm, and I'm of a superior rank, then that, again, I have, it's not that I'm not concerned, I'm not careful, it's just that's going to influence the way that I act and what I say. But if I go into a room and I'm at the, the lowest rank of everybody there, I'm going to probably just not say anything. <laughs> you know, it's like, so it's this, it's just very practical, I think, for, for Paul to do this, to just say, listen, if you, if, if you want an older man to receive your correction, then you need to treat him like he's your own blood father. You know, would you talk to your dad that way? You know, would you just run up to them and shove something down their, his throat? So he gives these examples to the younger men as brothers. So if you're going to rebuke a younger man in the church, then you do relate in this, this brotherly Type way, the older women as mothers and the younger women as sisters in all purity. In other words, Paul writes to Timothy, this young pastor, and instructs him to view his relationships within the household of God in terms of family relationships. Now, if you think about it, many of the conflicts that are in our churches escalate to such a large scale because we fail to see others in the church as family members. In fact, sometimes we reduce them to just people, not brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers. They're just people or just names filling the roles of the church, right? We're, we're, it's like we have, we, have, we have started to think of them or to refer to them as something other than family members. Sort of like Adam, right, in the Garden of Eden when, he can, when, the, when God... Uh, uh, con- confronted Adam, and Adam said, "Is it's it's that woman that you gave to me?" Well, I can tell you, if if Eve was close by, <laughs> that woman, <laughs> it's like, okay, you talk about deep, sort of detaching for a moment. Okay, it's not Eve, it's not it's not my wife, it's that woman. Okay, and you'd, you'd like to think that we wouldn't do that. Okay, but I, I can just tell you, I've, I have counseled people that refer to their spouses in this sort of 
very objective way, as, as if they're not, you know, there's no personal relationship. I mean, I've had it happen in a counseling session with husband and wife sitting at the table and him not looking at his wife practically the entire time and referring to her as the wife. So every time he referred to his wife, he said the wife. Never called her by her first name and never looked over there at her. And I'm telling you, she was boiling. I mean, she was just kind of just like, if she had had a shotgun, I mean, he would have been, they, she would have mounted that guy's head in the, uh, above the mantle. I mean, she was so angry at him for doing that. And it just, that, but that's, like I said, that's a, that's a very obvious problem, you know, when you hear that going on. But I'm saying, we, but we do it up here, right? We, we do it in our minds. We do it in our hearts. Sometimes conflicts get so bad in churches that people refer the, to their opponent as that guy or that woman trying to distance themselves from that person, trying to, to depersonalize him or her. But in nearly every context of Scripture where it speaks of conflict, it uses this family language. It uses the language of brothers and sisters. Think of it, Matthew 5, to 24, Jesus uses brother four times in that context to describe the person that we're in conflict with. We see it in 1 Corinthians 6, we see it in Matthew 18, verse 15, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. Matthew 18, at the end of that chapter, verse 35, my heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of, each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. So there's this constant reminder that you've got, to, you've got to remind yourself of the relationship that you have with these people. This is just not some person. This is just somebody off the street. I mean, if you've got a conflict in the church, you're, you've got a conflict with a family member. Okay, this is big, big stuff. So recap. God is sovereign over all conflict. He ordains it for our good. God has called us to make every effort to seek peace in every situation And God repeatedly commands that we look at conflict within the church as a family affair. Now, with those things sort of as a foundation, let's let's talk a little bit about what it is, what is conflict, and what what causes it, or or what leads to it. Uh, Or you might even just say these are these are contexts in which we see conflict in the Bible presented to us, and we can learn from it because we can say, okay, there's this conflict going on, Old Testament or the New Testament. What were the dynamics that were creating the conflict? And and my assumption when I read Scripture is that Scripture is trying to connect. It's connecting with me. It's not meant for me to read it and say, oh, that's not me. You know, or even even some of the, the things that people do in Scripture that are good things. For me to not go, well, that's that's those heroes of the faith. You know, that's not me. No, that's not why Scripture gives us those examples of faithfulness. Scripture gives us examples of faithfulness because Scripture expects us to be as faithful as Noah. <laughs> right? I mean, Noah's not some superhero, right? If we distance ourselves from that, then we'll never we'll never follow in, in his in his footsteps. We'll never follow that example. So those examples of faithfulness are meant for us to, to, to follow. And, and then on the other side, those examples of failure are not meant for us to say, well, I would never do that. I can't believe those disciples. I can't believe that the Israelites, right? That's, that's not what it's there for. It's there for us to read it and go, that's me. That's me. Maybe not in detail exactly. It doesn't play out the exact same way. But at the heart level, for sure. Um, so... Let's talk about those two things. What is conflict? And then what are some of these examples of things that cause it or, or lead to it? Uh, first of all, what is it? Um, think about when someone says, I am so conflicted. All right? So they're, they're talking about they've got this thing that they want to do, and they're saying, ah, you know, I'm just so conflicted. Well, what are they saying when they say that? Because that's, that's the term, right? Con- conflicted conflict. What does a person mean by that? What do you think? What are, they, what are they trying to communicate to you when they say, I'm so conflicted about this? Okay, about maybe that particular thing. There might be, good, good, there might be pros, there might be cons. What else? What are they trying to say? I, I'm what? I mean, what's going on in my heart, in my mind, if that's the case? If I'm so conflicted? Not at peace. What else? 
What's that? Doubtful about it? Okay, what else? What's that? Confused? Okay. So, uh, in other words, it's this idea that there's, there's sort of a tug of war going on, right, internally, because we have two or sometimes more things that we either need to do or want to do that don't go together, right? So they're at odds with one another. So when we say I'm conflicted, all we're, all we're saying is whatever the things are, we're just saying that there's a clash between at least two things in my life. Good or bad, whatever, but I'm just saying at the, at the core, that's all we're saying. At the minimum, that's all we're saying is that we have two competing wants or needs. And we can't figure out if I, I think I need to go do this, but I'm feeling this like I need to do this too, but I can't do those two things at the same time. I, I feel like I need to do, go here, but I'm also, I have to go be over here, and I, and I, and I feel like I'm being pulled apart. So that, that, at the root, that's all we're saying. Is that, is that conflict is a difference, or you might even say competing agendas. Or you may say that conflict happens when you are at odds with another person over either what you think or what you want or what you choose to do. In fact, that's Ken Sandy's definition out of The Peacemaker. It's a good good. A resource. Some of you have asked me about different resources. Peacemaker by Ken Sandy is a great one, uh, and there's a there's a, a mini mini version of that called Resolving Everyday Conflict, which is just a short read, but it's really really good, concise um, explanation of peacemaking. Uh, it's a good good counseling tool if you if you're looking to uh, help somebody out or even in your own life. So it it just begins with with not getting what you want. Okay, so conflicts that we that conflicts don't happen in some vacuum, right? They start when things don't go the way that we want them to go, and then that's not a major problem at that point, right? Because there's just times where you just are aware, you know, you want to do something, I want to do something, and we're together, and we're going to go, and and we're just at there's just a difference between us, but then where it sort of escalates or begins to spiral out of control is when we sin by being discontent and then demanding that we get our way. So initially, it can just be sort of a difference, these competing agendas, but then it really has where the scriptures go is that the scriptures usually when it talks about conflict are not just not simply talking about the fact that we have differences, but it's usually it's usually giving us instruction about what to do as we have sinfully handled those differences. <laughs> so this thing has gotten out of control. That's just sort of the context of James 4. Uh, and this is a passage we'll look at in detail uh, later on. But chapter 4, one, verse 1, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? Not the members of the church, but in your... It's like there's, there, it, it, James is essentially saying this, there's a conflict going on in here, okay? The conflict that's going on in here leads to the conflict that's going on out here. So he says, verse 2, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. So as Christians, we can't escape conflict. We may, we may think at times that if we can just do the right thing, we can steer clear of clashes or that people won't mistreat us. Or we think that if we just trust God enough, then everything, including our relationships with others, will effortlessly work out. But life as a Christian doesn't work that way. We can't easily escape conflict because we are products of our own misguided desires. We are all part of the problem, and the problem is part of all of us. That is to say, we sometimes think that if we could just get away from difficult people, then we could have a conflict-free life. But even if we could withdraw into some kind of cocoon, conflict would come with us. Okay, so, because that's what James is saying, is if you just, 
It, we can take, if you have a con- conflict going on here, if this is a heart issue where you're envy, envious and you have this bitter zeal, this bitter jealousy, and your mind is set on earthly things, you might make a huge mistake in thinking that if you can just get away from that person or that context or that circumstance, that you can have a peaceful life. Okay, But you're going to carry that heart with you. You're going to carry that problem with you. And what you're going to find is that if you don't deal with that envy and jealousy and selfish ambition, you're, you're going to look back over your life and there's going to be broken relationship after broken relationship after strained relationship in your wake because you always thought it was those people, right? You were always thinking of the problem as it's that boss, it's that kid, it's that person that I sit next to in church, it's that pastor, it's whatever, you fill in the blank. But as long as we think that's the main problem, then we're going to be the common denominator, Right? We're going to look back over all that conflict and that wreckage and, and, and we're going to say, well, no, it was that person and this person and that time in my life and this individual and that circumstance and the people that are looking at your life are going to say, what's the common denominator? Right? It's not all of that. It's, it's you and you never learn to deal with conflict at a heart level. Now, sadly... Conflict invades Christian relationships just as it does every other human relationship, right? It happens among us in many ways. It it might be smaller things. It could turn into loud disagreements, even public splits. But more often than not, there exist things such as slander and gossip and backbiting and criticism and unforgiveness or undermining people's character. God's people fight over worship styles, building designs, ministry programs, and any, anything else you can think of. We face conflict just like everyone else. Sometimes seeing our own brokenness and sin, but often not knowing how to fix it or how to work through a challenging relationship or situation. So again, it gets back to the gospel, right? It gets back to these fundamental things that we can never leave those things behind, that, that we, we have an incredible amount of, of resources and wisdom in the Word of God of, of, of how to do this. But if, we, if we're just trying to be at peace with everybody, and, and not, again, not peace, this is peace faking, just, I'm just going to avoid all, those, all conflict, or I'm, every time I get into a conflict, I'm just going to make an assumption that it's the situation and the circumstances that's causing me to sin, rather than it, realizing this is an attitude, this is, this is a perspective, this is an unbiblical way of, of, of thinking on my part, then even if, we, even if we recognize that we live in a fallen world and we even to some extent recognize that we're sinners, we're still not going to handle it well. We're, we're not actually going to work through the conflict in, in a faithful way. Now, what about the causes of conflict? And I want to just mention, got a few minutes left, just... just Maybe two or maybe three of these this morning, and then we'll come back. There's a total of six of these. Uh, The first, for for starters, the Bible teaches that some conflicts come from, we just might call this God-given diversity. God-given diversity. Each of us is like a a different part of the human body. This is an analogy that Paul uses in in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We all have an important role to play. We, we each bring different perspectives and gifts to the table. It's the reason why Hebrews tells us that we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together because there is a mutual ministry that goes on when the church is gathered together. It's it, you know People that, 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 that are sort of uh, hit and miss with their involvement with church, they just sort of come when they want to come and they're not there when they, when they, when they don't feel like being there. And that's actually, you know, that's very common. I mean, it's super, super common for people to think of church in that way. They're, they're really failing on both sides because they're, it's not just that they need that encouragement. And, and they, it's not just that they need that ministry of others in their life to keep them on track. But the reason we don't forsake the assembling together is because we have an obligation to be stimulating others to good deeds, right? So that none of us are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. 
So there's this, it's just, it's just a requirement. It's, just, it's an absolute necessity that we gather as the body of Christ regularly so that that ministry takes place. And yet we have to realize that when we do come together, we're, we're different. <laughs> okay? We're not all eyes. We're not all ears. We're not all feet. Right? There is a God-given diversity that leads to natural differences. So it just makes sense that we're going to have different opinions, different convictions, different desires and priorities. If we handle those differences in, a, in the right way, so if we, let's just say, if, if we come together with those differences and we have humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance with one another, and a determination to pursue peace, then that's a good thing, right? Because what that does is stimulate conversation, dialogue, creativity, and change, right? So we've got to cultivate those right kinds of attitudes and and understand that many of our differences aren't necessarily right and wrong issues. They're simply the result of these God-given features, so we, we just come together as, as the body. We know God is not looking for uniformity. God is looking for unity, right? So rather than avoiding all conflicts or demanding that others always agree with us, we can appreciate the variety of God's creation that actually keeps life interesting, right? And, and we can learn to accept and to work with people who simply see things different than we do. So Bob... Right here, Bob comes by the office every Friday morning. He helps us in the library. Carol's there with him. And I just, I love Bob. I mean, Bob is just, he's different than me. He's, 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 uh, he's funny, you know. So, <laughs> not to say that I'm, I guess I'm, I guess I'm not that funny. But he is, there are just, I, I love being around him. I love getting with, with Tim Ryan and with William Volenweider on Friday mornings before I go to the office because those men are different than me. And, and they say things to me that, are, that challenge me. You know, I'm talking about some issue, and they're like, oh, really? I've never even thought of that. I, I always looked at it this way, and I'm like, wow, that's, that's, I haven't thought about that. So there's just this thing that ought to happen, that if we're unified around the right things and we have the right attitudes, then that can be a positive to help us to grow when other people say, well, this is my perspective. It doesn't always have to be, I'm right, and you're wrong, or you're right, and I'm wrong. So, so unity, we just have to understand the difference there. Unity means that we are of one purpose, one mind, one heart. Uniformity means that we're all clones of each other with everybody looking, thinking, and acting the same. And that's just not the case. That's not what the Lord is, is, is looking for. That's not the way he designed the church. So we ought to, to say, we ought to expect people in the church to think differently than us. Right? And yet sometimes we're surprised by it. We're surprised when we get into a conversation with another family and we're talking about what their family is doing and what our family is doing and they just they say something and we're like, you know, well, that's not the way that we do it. You know, those aren't the, the, you're making some decisions there that honestly, I mean, that's, you know, and, and then we just start making assessments, right? Either, either we're, we're right and they're, too, they're, they're showing too, they have too much liberty or we're right and they're too, they're too legalistic, right? But either way, we're right. <laughs> right? I mean, it's like, I mean that, that person did that, you know, way too loose. That is way too loose. Or we, where we say, man, they are so tight. I mean, loosen up a little bit, you know, but it, it never occurs to us where we are, right? I mean, maybe they're dead on and we're loose or we're being legalistic, right? But we just start with this self-centeredness that says, I'm right. And then everybody else, I'm trying to put them on the but like a little pin, right, on, on the bulletin board. Like, here's, this, here's Joel, I'm this center, I'm right, and then other people are sort of begin to see them in relation to my own opinions and preferences and ways of thinking. So that, that's one cause. I think you see that. I think you actually see examples of that in, in the Scriptures of conflicts that arose from God-given diversity. And so that can lead to that. Again, that's not a, that, the, the diversity is not the problem. But I'm just saying these are situations that often lead us to sinful conflicts because we don't appreciate what the Lord has done. We don't recognize His design in that. Uh, one more, and we'll stop. The se- second cause of conflict, we just say sim- simple misunderstandings. Simple misunderstandings. There isn't a person on this planet who communicates perfectly 
whether speaking or listening. I mean, I, I, I am, I am, it's every week, folks. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's like, it's this thing that lately I just feel like I'm seeing it more and more in my own life where I thought that I heard something and I, I did not hear it. I mean, I mean, it's, it's, I don't know if it's, I mean, it could just be my hearing. I mean, physical, bodily hearing, I, it's getting worse or, or I'm just, it could be the fact that people in, at least in Georgia, are not their their lingo is sometimes difficult to understand. I, I remember one of our contractors years ago on the, on the, it was at our old old property. And this guy came up to me. He was he was an earth a bulldozer operator, and he said something to me. And I had no idea what that guy said, and he he was it was important. I could tell it was important, and he was and he but his words were all they all just ran together. It was like there were no consonants. Okay? It was like it was like he had taken a, a sentence, put all the words together into one word and then removed most of the consonants and so it kind of it had this like flow to it and I was like I said, "I'm sorry, what did you say?" And he told me and I four times. I mean, it's like we're the point where you're getting the point of you just you know you at some point you're going to offend this person by asking them again. I'm sorry, can you tell me, can you just one more, if you just, <laughs> one more time, I'm just about, I'm adding the consonants in, like, as we go. <laughs> and what he had to say was, but, and it didn't offend him, he was a great guy. But I'm saying, I, I am, I, I am amazed at just how I'll hear something or a part of something, and then I'm off to the races, right? And then somewhere, right, that, 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 that gets you into trouble, you know, so your wife says, you need to do this, this, and this, or get this at the store, or whatever. You need me to make you a list? No, I got it. Right? And then you get to the store, and then you're too proud. You don't really remember, but you don't want to call her and ask, because she offered to, for you to write it down. And so, and you try, and you're thinking, oh, what was she was talking about this and that. So we, we just don't hear, and we don't speak ourselves. Right? We think that we have made ourselves clear. We think that we have spoken in a clear way, that people have listened and they've understood correctly and then we jump to conclusions that are faulty and then and then you add to that our impatience and our prejudices and that just feeds into all that misunderstanding right so we think that we heard what somebody said we think we understand their position on something or their 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 take on it or we think that we have clearly given instructions about something or that we've explained something well and, and folks, this is just, Al Mohler actually has a, he, he written an article about the, the noetic effect of sin, which is just a, it's the effect of sin on the mind. And he listed like 15 things that sin, how it affects our thinking. And one of those, it affects our remembering, right? It affects sometimes just our, in, the way that we hit, things hit us and the way that we put things together sometimes, like the way we hear things. And think that we get it, but we don't, or we think we're being clear and we're not, and there's just a blindness there about it's. it's in other words, it's, there's like we don't have a self awareness of our inability to be a clear communicator. <laughs> it's like we think we're clear, and everybody's scratching their heads. Like I don't know what I don't know what he's talking about, and and we walk away thinking we're we're understood and we're not. Sometimes that that alone, folks is enough to cause a massive argument, a massive conflict. I, I, it plays out in, the, in, in life of the church, right? I mean, you, you just, you're just talking about ministry or you're talking about what you believe or you're talking about this and that, and, you're, and it's just simple, everyday conversation, but we miss each other, right? One's AM, one's FM, just different, different ways we listen and, and we speak. And unfortunately, we tend to take offense and assume the worst about others. So again... You take simple misunderstandings and you add pride, prejudice, selfishness, this me-centeredness, and you've got a conflict. And, and, and sometimes it's the, it, it, the good thing is that those are easy to resolve sometimes, right? It's like uh, you, you tend to resolve those things quicker because they're simple misunderstandings. But shame on us that we even sometimes get that far down the road just because we're blind to our own sin. So God wants us to assume the best about others until we actually know 
otherwise. And we just have to constantly be striving to make ourselves clear and, and to be a good listener. And uh, even yesterday, my wife and I were talking with a young couple, and, and we were just talking about this issue of, you know, you're listening, but you can't wait to get you, what you want to say out. And so you're almost, you're just, you know, you're in your mind you're doing this, even though <clears throat> you know how disrespectful that is. <laughs> so, so you don't actually, although I've seen people actually <laughs> you know, do this. It's like, what a g- dead giveaway. But in your mind, you're doing this just so that you can, because you just think what you have to say is so much more important, right? Pride. It's pride. So simple misunderstandings, God-given diversity. We'll stop there for today. When we come back, we're going to talk about, um, well, the next one we're going to talk about are authority issues. A lot of conflict in the scriptures revolves around spiritual authority, whether that is a misunderstanding about who is in authority and who's not, or whether that's an issue of sinful attitudes that authority figures have, Right, because there are there are things that leaders have to be on guard against that cause conflicts. Right, so leaders can create conflict if they have sinful attitudes and understandings. Um, sometimes leaders can do things that cause conflicts, just like, for instance, not delegating. Right, I mean, this is a common one. Leaders just try to do it all and they don't delegate. That causes conflict. We see it in the Old Testament. So we're going to look specifically at authority as a bigger category. We're going to drill into that with some specifics, and then there'll be three other um, causes, if you will, uh, of conflict that we'll look at. And then we're going to start getting to the solutions, right? We've talked about the attitudes, but we're going to begin to put some flesh on the bones of how do you actually work through these situations in, in the Christian life. Okay? All right, folks, thank you so much for your time.